how does one belong to the kingdom of God? Well, we know that it's not by following these steps. We know that it's not by work and merit, as Ephesians tells us, so that no one may boast. But it is when we fully trust and put our lives by faith in Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior. And a result of that, a fruit of that, would be what we see here today, these characteristics. And what's interesting about these characteristics is that they begin immediately when we become a believer. They are a process of our regeneration. And we'll see that in number one. Number one is uh, entitled, God's people are created to be practitioners of spiritual neediness before God. I know that's kind of lengthy. That we are created to be practitioners of spiritual neediness before God. This is the verse that Hale, one of the verses Hale read, Matthew chapter 5, verse 3, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Now the word here teaches us that people who belong to this kingdom are blessed. And I think your most raw and literal trans- translation of this is happy. And unfortunately, where the, the truth of the scripture is, is that we are happy and joyful and in, in this status that we have in the kingdom, we think of happy on a completely different level. We think of happy as things that gives us physical benefit, temporary joy, temporary uh, beauty and, and excitement. And, and so what happens is, is that we have a faulty view of happiness. And so Jesus is there sitting with his disciples and he's trying to realign their understanding of of happiness in this world. Another way you could say this is that people of the kingdom have the favor of God upon them. That's what it means to be blessed. That you have experienced the favor and the grace of God. And so the kingdom status is that we are blessed. And the fruit of this kingdom favor, this kingdom status before God, that we are blessed in him, is that we will be poor in spirit. Notice this is not a command. Jesus does not say, brothers and sisters, disciples who have chosen to follow me, be poor in spirit. Instead, he's saying, that you are poor in spirit, that this personifies or characterize, uh, characterization of a person who belongs to the kingdom. Well, what does it mean to be poor in spirit? Well, he, he's not talking about financial poverty. He's not talking about um, uh, someone who um, takes away all the financial blessings and, and maybe wants to live in, in, a, in a way of, of complete nothingness so that he could be closer to God. You know, throughout history, we've seen uh, even Christians who have tried to remove all uh, possessions in their life because they thought that it brought them closer to God. This is not a pious poverty. It's not a physical poverty. Jesus is not saying, listen, if you're poor on the side of the road with your cardboard sign, then yours is the kingdom of heaven. That's not what he's saying. But instead, he's speaking to these disciples in such a way that they understood poverty. They saw poverty all around them, but he's saying to be poor in spirit. It's a spiritual poverty. 
It is a complete and total neediness before God. It is an acknowledgement that we are dependent upon him for all things, but specifically for our spiritual lives. And so going back to what I just said previously, this is the initial point. This is the initial power of the Holy Spirit that works within us because we can never come to God if we are not first acknowledging that we are poor in spirit, that we are broken and needy before God. And folks, let me tell you that the scripture teaches us that, that, in this, that before Christ, that we are a dead in sin, that we are completely separated from God because of our sin. And so we will not acknowledge that we need God. This is a power and a work that comes from God, and it works within us. In other words, he opens our eyes to see our neediness before him. And this is something that is not only required or, or it characterizes a, a, a believer in the kingdom, a, a kingdom citizen, but it's something that, that almost ushers us into the kingdom. That when that time in your life when you came to profess Christ as your Lord and Savior, you could not have professed Christ as your Lord and Savior without being completely broken and poor in spirit. A complete neediness of God. We have to understand and know that we must approach God with our hands open and saying, I have nothing to offer, but please, I trust in Christ and what he has accomplished. He has everything, he has accomplished everything, and I have nothing to offer to be reconciled to God. I have nothing to give. And so we trust fully in the, in the, in the cross of Christ we see our utter ruin without God and that our only hope of salvation, our only hope of peace with God is through Christ. That's why in Romans chapter 3, Paul writes that no one is righteous. No one basically has a right standing before God. No one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Folks, I don't know how much clearer that can be for the world today. And yet in Romans chapter 1, it says that the unrighteous suppress that kind of truth in their unrighteousness. So if you're here this morning and you maybe are on the side that believes that you have something to offer God that you have some spiritual value in yourself that you can offer God to make him accept you or be, uh, you can be worthy before him outside of Christ. Let me tell you, Romans chapter 3 says no one. How could you be outside of no one? It's impossible. Or, or the opposite side of the coin is, is that you don't feel like you have something to offer God. You just don't want to offer anything to God or be close to God. You are the opposite of being poor in spirit. You are proud in the flesh. You have no need for God. You are intellectually at a point in your life where you feel, why do I need God? Why do I need to try to understand this ancient book? And the truth of the matter is, is that you may think that you have reached a level of intellectual um, 
of, of, of a, some kind of intellectual plane that, that you don't need God or you, you, you may not see a, an importance with God, but yet it, it, the scripture clearly says that because you are part of the no one is righteous, then you do not stand before God as righteous and he will judge you as the unrighteous. And you will face the full wrath of God because you stand before him in unrighteousness. And so the Bible says that people of the citizen, citizens of the kingdom of God are poor in spirit. A great illustration of this is in Matthew chapter 18. As Jesus is struggling to teach these disciples, these young um, people of the faith, and, and he's trying to help them understand kind of this concept and they're literally, if you read the different parallel passages of Matthew 18 and the other parallels, you'll see this one scenario where the, the disciples are arguing back and forth about who is going to be greatest in the kingdom. And they're not talking about other people, they're talking about themselves. And Jesus uses this as a teaching moment. And in Matthew's uh, version of this story, he says that the disciples come to him and say, who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? And Jesus, in all his beauty and his wisdom, he, he, doesn't, he doesn't necessarily get into this debate. He just, he, he brings a small child close to him. And he puts the child in the midst of them, it says. And he says to them, truly I say to you, unless you turn and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. That's what it means to be poor in spirit. What is a child? He, he's innocent in a sense of, of needing, uh, he's completely helpless and he needs and is dependent upon us. Little Truman is here today with us and, and, and Truman can do absolutely nothing on his own. He is completely incapable of doing anything but sitting there and being a child and doing what little infant newborns do. You can fill in the blank. And that is, that is how we come to, to Christ, is that we, we realize that, number one, we need him. That, that, that we were created to, to love him and worship him and enjoy him forever. And that there's no possible way for us to ascend, to, to stand before him in our unholiness and our unrighteousness. And so we come to him saying, I can do nothing on my own. I totally need you. But the world says, nah, you don't, need, you don't need God. You need to be self-confident. Being poor in spirit to the world sounds like a big downer. You're supposed to be self-assured and confident and zealous for success with fame and glory attached to that. Something that I think sums up the, the complete contrasting arrogance of the world and of the unrighteous was written in the 1800s. Is a poem written in the 1800s by a man named William Ernest Henley. And you've probably heard the, the last two verses of this passage or this poem, but I want to read it. Henley was an atheist, and he, he suffered severely from tuberculosis. Matter of fact, tuberculosis eventually took his life at a pretty young age. And he writes this as a young 27-year-old who struggles with such a disease. Out of the night that covers me, black as the pit from pole to pole, I think whatever God's, lowercase g, may be, 
for my unconquerable soul. In the fell clutch of circumstance, I have not winced or cried aloud. Under the bludgeonings of chance, my head is bloody but unbowed. Beyond this place of wrath and tears looms but the horror of the shade, and yet the menace of the years finds and shall find me unafraid. It matters now not how straight the gate, how charged the punishments of the scroll. I am the master of my fate. I am the captain of my soul. Now, if you're a a lover of poetry, you could see the beauty in that passage. If you're a lover of God, it should make you sick to your stomach. This man was openly defying the, the providence, the sovereignty, the, the rule, the power, even the love of God, the goodness of God. And this clearly confused young man is speaking simply with his words what the unrighteous and the unbelieving people of this world proclaim is that life is all about their leadership and their rule and their purpose and, and their desires. And so the kingdom of God is different. The kingdom of God says that all glory be to Christ. That our relationships and our time in this world and our possessions and all these things, they exist because God has graciously brought them in our lives and he can, with all his goodness and with all his righteousness and with all his justice, he can take them away at any moment. And so the characteristic number one is that, that we are to be or we are characterized as being poor in spirit. And that is not something that just occurs at regeneration, but it continues on in our lives that we live as people broken before God. Day by day, resting upon the gospel and the grace of Jesus Christ when we fail in our flesh when we're unkind to our children or we're disobedient uh, to our, our, our marriage or, or we're, um, we're lackluster in our, in our study of God's word or our attendance with God's people and, and we're constantly reminded that we only can make it through this life by the grace of God. And so it's a lifestyle of being poor in spirit. And what greater reflection can we see in the, in the whole word of God and specifically in the New Testament where Christ is represented as the poorest in spirit? See, Christ fulfills this perfectly because he represents the kingdom perfectly. We may not always be the poorest in spirit, even though uh, in, in regeneration we are changed and we have been given new life. And yet Christ is perfectly poor in spirit. Even he never needed to come into this world and ask for anything, and yet he asked. There was no need for Jesus to pray to the Father, and yet he prayed. There was no reason for Jesus to be born in a humble state, 
There was no reason for him to, to be stricken with grief and smitten by men. And so we, we can see just very specifically how Jesus represents one who is the poorest in spirit by choice, depending upon the Father, depending upon the power of the Spirit to accomplish the work in his, lot, in, in the, in his ministry. Is he not the omnipotent second person of the Trinity? And yet the third person of the Trinity, the Spirit comes upon him and empowers him for ministry? And so uh, what I want us to see this morning from these Beatitudes is that you and I will fail at times as Christians to be poor in spirit. And, and, and these passages are one to raise awareness uh, of those who have never come to this uh, place of entrance into the kingdom. These, these show us the characteristics of the people of God. And yet they also draw us as believers in Christ to the grace of God to know that Christ fulfills these beatitudes when we fail and yet we strive in holiness to do what they command. And so the evaluation in our own lives is, are we dependent upon God? Are there areas in our lives where by repentance we need to turn from a, a, a boasting or an arrogance in the flesh and we need to, to, to be more poor in the spirit? And I think we can all evaluate our lives and see that, that grip and that control that we try to have on our lives but even in our spiritual lives. Listen, if, if you think bringing a, a table full of, of, of wonderful, delicious treats in, a, in some form of casserole, if that's your entrance into heaven, as silly as that sounds, you're mistaken. If you think that, that coming to church and, and, and being involved in a church is some kind of entrance into the kingdom, then you have to do an unimaginable amount more, and you will never reach that goal. It is a Grand Canyon expanse between an unbelieving person, an unrighteous person, and God. And only Christ brings us to him. Number two, God's people are created to be those who mourn over personal sin and all things contrary to God. Again, we see the kingdom status is blessed, as Matthew says in verse 4, blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. The kingdom status is blessed. The fruit of being blessed in the kingdom is that we will mourn over our sin. And the grace of that is that we will be comforted. We have this emphasis, and it, all these really bleed together with one another. Matthew or Thomas Watson says that, that uh, Jesus particularly and purposefully put blessed are the poor in spirit first because that is the beginning of all of these virtues, of all of these characteristics. You cannot mourn over uh, your sin, as verse 4 tells us, if you are not poor in spirit, and you will not be meek. As verse 5 tells us, if you are not mourning over your sin and you're not poor in spirit. 
And so mourning is reflecting again upon the spiritual life, that we are people who look at our lives, who evaluate ourselves, and we mourn and we weep. Isn't it interesting that, that it says that you are blessed if you mourn? How strange is that? Hey, you will be happy. You will experience happiness if you mourn. Those seem contrasting uh, ideas. But again, speaking upon the favor of God, it says that you are blessed if you mourn. If you see and acknowledge the sin in your life, you are blessed. God has opened your eyes to the blind spots of sin that you don't see yourself. And that you would not see if it wasn't for the law of God shining forth and the gospel of God showing you that sin. That's why James chapter 4 verse 9 again sounds strange. He says, be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. What's James talking about? He's not saying sad, depressed, emotionally um, low people. He's saying that we should be broken over our sin. That we should turn our laughter over the enjoyment of the flesh and the enjoyment of sin and we should turn that to a brokenness where we look upon the things that we have done in our lives that we continue to do and we see them as direct offenses against a holy God. For a person to truly come to Christ, they will see their dependence upon him and in the face, as as like in Isaiah chapter six, in the face of God's holiness, they will be broken over their sin. And it continually represents those in the kingdom. If you'd hold your place here, I want to illustrate this in, in Psalm chapter uh, Psalm thirty-two, verses one through five. It's a great Psalm of David. Psalm thirty-two, verses one through five. This, by the way, is an Old Testament beatitude, as well as Psalm 1. And it starts the very same way. Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity, and in whose spirit there is no deceit. For when I keep silent, my bones wasted away, through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up as by the heat of the summer. I acknowledged my sin to you, and I did not cover my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. What a significant passage to think about as we talk about this mourning over our sin. Notice in verse 3 of that passage that that David says that his bones were wasting away. And he's he's saying that because he was concealing his sin. He wasn't mourning over his sin. He was trying to conceal it. 
He says, when I kept silent, when I tried to hide this truth, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. And I love this. He says, but for day and night, your hand was heavy upon me. You ever get that way where, where you, you see the sin in your life and you just, you know that the, the heaviness of, of that, that sin and that offense against God, it just weighs heavy upon you. And then you confess that sin. I had a friend of mine call me last week and he's going through some difficulty and, and he said, you know, God's teaching me a lot through this difficulty. And he said, Nathan, I want you to know that 10 years ago, I lied to you about something in my life, and I, I have remembered that since that day 10 years ago, and it's been heavy upon my life. And he wanted to confess that sin to me and ask me for forgiveness. And I just thought, that's what, that's what the Holy Spirit does. That's what a, a citizen of the kingdom experiences, is that our, our, our sensitivities, our spirit within us is so sensitive to, our consciences are so sensitive to the truth of God's word so that when we sin against God, it's the heaviness of, of God's glory and his holiness weigh upon us so that those who love the Lord will confess. They will mourn and they will weep because they have disobeyed, they have rebelled against their creator. And this also, I think, encompasses not only personal sin, but it, it encompasses a larger brokenness over sin in the world. Psalm 119 says, My eyes shed streams of tears because people do not keep your law. That not only should we mourn over our personal sin, and that what, that's the place that we should start, but that the sin of this world the depravity and the immorality of this world should weigh heavy upon us. It gives us so much to pray for, so much to take before the Lord. When we see our friends and family's marriages fail and our children reject the gospel, the immorality of this world all around us, and it forces us, us to just to be broken and to, to cry out to God who is our hope and our strength and, and to Christ who is coming again and who will change all these things and make them new. Who will remove this curse of sin upon the world and it, it makes us long for that. And the world, of course, says that we focus too much on our sin and our failures we need to be positive thinkers. We need to look at the glass half full, not half empty. Thomas Watson said that God has to empty your cup before it can, he can fill it with him. And yet modern psychology tells us that the people's problems are, are not their own fault. That a, a child pedophile is now considered having a genetic disposition and, not as guilt, and is not one who is guilty of sexual morality. A failing marriage is given the green light for divorce because they gave it the best try and they're just not happy anymore instead of dealing with the personal sin that is causing that marriage to crumble. And of course, the church at large is following suit by straying away from dealing with sin 
In 19, or in 2013, Katie Couric interviewed famous megachurch pastor Joel Osteen. She asked Osteen why people are such a critic or give such criticism of his sermons and his material. She asked him, it doesn't appear that you really have a moral template that you teach in your church. Osteen replies, you know, there's enough people pushing down in life already. When they come to my church, our meetings, I want them to be lifted up. I want them to know that God is good, that they can move forward, that they can break an addiction, and they can become who God's created them to be. But then he later remarks, I wouldn't consider myself a theologian, and I don't debate the scripture. I feel what I'm good about, and I think that this is the one reason the ministry is successful. I talk about how we live the Christian life, how we forgive, and how we can have a good self-image. Listen, God doesn't want you to have a good self-image outside of Christ. If you want to have an identity in yourself and a confidence and, and, an, and a reason for boasting, you boast in Christ alone. You boast in what he has accomplished, that your identity is found in him, that your value and your worth is in him, not in yourself. And so Christ is, again, the ultimate fulfillment then of the one who mourns. Again, the, the times in our lives that we choose not to mourn, that, that our flesh rises up and we try to conceal our sin, we can still understand and know that Christ perfectly mourns. We see this in his life. That we see in, in John chapter 11, verse 35, Jesus mourning over his friend Lazarus. And of course, Lazarus was, had died and Jesus is there weeping because he sees his dead friend and he knows that his friend's death is a cause of the effects of sin. And he weeps because these friends of his, his Lazarus' relatives, do not understand and know that Christ Jesus has the power to raise him from the dead. And so there we see Jesus mourning, not over his sin. We know that Jesus is without personal sin but yet we see constantly Jesus reflecting upon the sin of the world. He is burdened by it, and it leads him to the cross of Calvary with which he dies to eradicate sin from this world. So let me ask you this morning, if you're a believer in here this morning, how is your time of confession before God over your sin? Let me encourage you this week, if you're not one that spends a lot of time confessing your sin individually and specifically to God, that you would start your prayer time in such a way. If it, if it's, if it results in a, in a more organized fashion that, that you would be able to write those down and, and be able to confess those to God. God wants you to confess your sins to him and that you could have hope. Don't just confess your sins, but, but back up those confessions with the hope of the gospel. 
Maybe even pray verses back to God that give you hope and, and remind you of the grace of, of God, like 1 John chapter 1, verses 8 and 9. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. But if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness, 1 John 1, 8 and 9. Pray that back to God. 2 Thessalonians 2, 16 and 17. Now may our Lord Jesus Christ himself and God our Father who loved us and gave us eternal comfort and good hope through grace comfort your hearts and establish them in every good work and word. And maybe there's other passages that that you could spend time confessing your sin and then praying those scriptures back to the Lord, being reminded of the hope that you have in the gospel. And know and trust in times where you fail to be mournful over your sin, that Christ's grace is sufficient, that Christ's grace covers your failures, and that his grace is what is fashioning and molding you to be more like him in his image. Number three. God's people are created to be those who live humbly in the world, acknowledging God's sovereign or God's glory as supreme. Again, the blessedness is the status, the meekness is the fruit, and the inheritance or the grace is the inheritance that we have of the earth. The word here says that we are um, to be people who are meek and humble. Again, this is talking specifically about a spiritual humility, but that spiritual humility, just like these other, they, they manifest themselves to, to an outward um, act and lifestyle. And it's been said many times before today that spiritual meekness does not mean spiritual weakness. Leon Moore says that true meekness is the quality of the strong. Those who could assert themselves, but actually choose not to do so. The strong who qualify for this are people who decline to domineer in the world. I mean, we see this uh, manifested perfectly in Christ Jesus, our Lord, where he is the one who, not counting equality with God a thing to be grasped, empties himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbles himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth." And every tongue confess that he is Lord. And so the point is, is that, that, that meekness characterizes the person that belongs to the kingdom of God. And as Christ sacrificed his life for sin, he sacrifices his glory as he came into the world. As he was treated as a wretch, even though he had this, this, this kingly lineage, he was born in obscurity. He deserves the praise of the world, and he's only worshipped by a handful of of people. 
And this brings such conviction in my own heart of times that I'm greedy for my own glory. I want the praise of man. I want my, my rights to be known. My rights as a husband, my rights as a father, my rights as a citizen of this country, my rights as a pastor. And a person in humility doesn't declare his rights. Instead, he declares the glory of God. And he lives to humble himself. And of course, the world lives, or the world says that we should live opposite of that. We should live like the Pharisees, right? We should pray with arrogance. We should lead other people as lords and not servants. Jesus warns the disciples of this in Mark 10. He says, you know that there are those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles who lord it over them. And their great ones exercise authority over them, but it shall not be among you. Whoever would be great among you would be your servant. And whoever would be first among you must be a slave of all. For even as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. And so the challenge of the scripture this morning is that people who believe and trust in Christ, we are not only called to live meekly, but it's the spirit of God that that breathes humility in us. Going back to the first passage or the first section in Philippians 2 verses 3 that I read earlier, we kind of have this command then from Paul then that humility is defined as counting others more significant than ourselves. That we should not look only to the interests of, uh, of ourselves, but to look at the interests of others, which is the mind of Christ Jesus. And yet our flesh rises up. Our flesh desires to live arrogantly and pridefully. And by God's grace, we suppress that arrogance, we shed that, we, we murder or, or annihilate that arrogance in our lives, and we live as humble people of God. And all these first three Beatitudes come with these beautiful promises. Back to verse three, the poor in spirit receive the kingdom of heaven. And as Stu reminded us this past week, This is is a promise presently and a promise in the future. The poor in spirit receive the kingdom of heaven. It is ours. It is now. We are now a part of the kingdom. It is not something we just look forward to in the future, although it will be consummated and fulfilled completely then. But we as the people of God, as believers of Jesus Christ, are a part of his kingdom now. Jesus Christ has ushered in that kingdom. And so the hope and the promise here and the grace that we receive is that we have been ushered into this kingdom. And for those who mourn, these aren't separate people. These are the same people who are poor in spirit and who mourn. The Bible says that we shall be comforted. It's a promise that Christ is the one who comforts us. That he is the one who who has come to to bring comfort to our lives through his sacrifice. 
You are in bondage to sin, and Christ sacrifices his life, and he frees you from that. Then he dies on the cross, paying for that sin, providing forgiveness. He's buried, and he raises victoriously from the dead. And the resurrection power that is displayed there shows you and promises you that your sin is not too difficult for God to overcome in your life. That your struggles are not any more difficult than raising someone from the dead. And so Christ's grace is sufficient. Christ's power is sufficient in your day-to-day struggles. And so you will be comforted. The Spirit of God comforts us. The Word of God comforts us. God's people comfort us. This is the kingdom and the citizens of God. And the last one is, blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. The grace and the beauty of this promise is that we shall inherit the earth. This is an eschatological look into the future. This is what the promise is, is that that as, as Christ comes again, he will take the church to himself And he will create a new heaven and a new earth. And and this earth will be our dominion. And it will be an earth like that was created before with Adam and Eve. It will be perfect and beautiful where we will live in fellowship with God and enjoy him forever as we were created to be. These are all the, the, the beautiful promises of these beatitudes. And so the person who believes and trusts in Christ looks forward to these things. And a person without Christ does not personify these things and, not, and will not receive these graces unless they believe and trust in Christ. And so the challenge this week for you, as I said before, in your prayer time, confess your sins before the Lord. Also in thinking about being poor in spirit, As just a practical way, think about all the spheres of your life, all the the different areas of your life. And if it's helpful to you, write down these areas, your family, your job, hobbies and such, all these things that you uh, have been given by God, and write down how you see God providing in your dependence upon him. How has God provided over the years for your family, in your job, in your health? How has God provided these things? And ultimately, recount and recall and praise God for the way that he radically saved you spiritually from death. And lastly, just as as practical application this morning, how can you visibly, with activity, be meek and humble this week before others? It's going to start with a potluck. It's going to start with serving each other, caring for one another. But even in your conversations, let me tell you, meekness is is an issue that I struggle with. And one of the ways that I struggle with meekness is in conversation. My prayer is that that God would make me a good listener and my, my difficulty and my struggle in my life with meekness is that I am already ready to talk 
about your conversation or take your conversation and turn it around toward a conversation about myself. Maybe that's, that describes you as well. So, you know, someone's telling you about their life and their difficulties and their struggle. And my first inclination at times in my flesh is to go, let me tell you something that happened to me. Let, let, me, let me bring this story around now to me and about my life and about my difficulties and my struggles. And folks, that's not meekness. That's arrogance. Even if I think in my mind I'm trying to minister to them when all they need is comfort and encouragement about their life and me to point them to Christ and his word. So maybe there's ways in your life this week that God can refine and shape your humility. As I close, I want to read one more poem. After William Ernest Henley wrote his very famous atheistic poem, it wasn't long that a woman named Dorothy Day responded to his poem with a Christ-centered response. And it goes like this. Out of the light that dazzles me, bright as the sun from pole to pole, I thank the God I know to be for Christ, the conqueror of my soul. Since his the sway of circumstance, I would not wince nor cry aloud. Under the rule which men call chance, my head with joy is humbly bowed. Beyond this place of sin and tears, that life with him and his the aid, that spite the menace of the years, keeps and will keep me unafraid. I have no fear through straight the gate. I, he cleared from punishment the scroll. Christ is the master of the fate, of my fate. Christ is the captain of my soul.